The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Leia Ippi. We talked about her new book, Free, Coming of Age at the End of History, which tells Leia's story of growing up in Stalinist Albania, the end of Communist Party rule in 1990, and the country's slide into violent chaos in 1997. We talked about Albania's isolation during the Cold War, after schisms with first the Soviet Union and then with China, and how the regime made sense of Albania's place in the world. We also talked about Leia's childhood and her reaction to learning that her parents were not the communist true believers she'd thought them to be. And finally, we discussed Leia's views on what liberalisation meant for the country and why her experience of the post-communist transition left her profoundly sceptical about liberal notions of what constitutes a truly free society. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is The Anthropocene Unconscious by Mark Bold. Today's movies, television and novels are pregnant with catastrophe, extreme weather, rising waters and climate weirdness. From the novel Duck's Newberry Port to zombie movies and the Fast and Furious franchise, the Anthropocene is to be found bubbling away everywhere. It has become, Mark Bold argues, the central subject of our collective unconscious. Described by China Mieville as a scintillating work of boisterous melancholy, The Anthropocene Unconscious, Climate Catastrophe Culture by Mark Bold is out now from Verso Books and is one of their selected reads for the Verso Book Club. And now to today's interview. Leia Ippi is Professor of Political Theory at the London School of Economics and author of Global Justice and Avant-Garde Political Agency. Her writing has appeared in Jacobin, The Guardian, Literary Review and The New Statesman, amongst other venues. Free, Coming of Age at the End of History is out now from Alan Lane and has been shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize. If you'd like to hear the extended hour-length version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. By signing up, you'll get access to extended versions of all other PTO episodes, and you'll also get a 50% discount on any print or ebook from Repeater Books. Their excellent titles include Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization by Grace Blakely, K-Punk, The Collected and Unpublished Writings of Mark Fisher, and Abolish Silicon Valley by Wendy Liu. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. So the book describes your childhood and and adolescence growing up in communist Albania in in the 1980s, the end of the regime in 1990, and, and also the brief civil war in 1997. And I was thinking when preparing for this interview, 
about perceptions of the Eastern Bloc in general as compared with Albania in particular and how with many of those other states there are certain events or, or features that very much became part of public consciousness in the West, whether that's the Berlin Wall in East Germany, the Prague Spring in, in Czechoslovakia with Yugoslavia, the schism with the Soviet Union. And one could think of other examples, perhaps certainly for Poland and, and Romania, say. Whereas it's at least my impression that communist Albania doesn't register in, in quite the same way, at least in the UK. Perhaps it's different, for instance, in, in, in Italy, and we might talk about the relationship with Italy later. But is that your impression too? And do you think that if that is the case, there are any advantages at all to the fact that there are perhaps fewer preconceptions brought to the history of Albania during the Cold War uh, here? Yeah, my impression talking to people in the West who have heard about Albania and have an interest in the history of Albania is that for many, many years during its communist period, it was this sort of mystery place which everyone knew was very isolated and was very hard to travel to and to travel from. And uh, sometimes people would pick the signal from Radio Tirana. I've heard lots of people in sort of Western countries, from Germany to Britain to um, Scandinavia, where they say, you know, occasionally we would get these waves from Radio Tirana, which had communist propaganda. And, um, and so we knew what the news were in the country. And it seemed really weird and strange because it was so out of tune with everything else that you were used to both from the East and from the West. And so for, for during this communist period, I think it had this, it was almost like the North Korea of Europe. It's the same way in which people would think now about North Korea, I think. In fact, it, I often, when I think of North Korea, I tend to think of Albania. And I, when I think about North Koreans, I think of them as sort of the way Albanians would have been thought of and, uh, as this very isolated, austere communist country, where from the inside people had a lot more information about the outside world than people from the outside world assumed they would have because of this status of isolated country. And then I think when the wall fell, people just assumed that events in Albania followed suit with the rest of Eastern Europe. And I think there are maybe a couple of episodes that would stand out, certainly in Italy, for example, the wave of migration in 1991, would be one where there was this kind of biblical wave of people, thousands of people going on boats and, and asking for um, refuge in Italy. And then afterwards, the um, 1997, the financial, the collapse of the pyramid schemes, and then obviously the war in Yugoslavia in 1999, I guess, would be moments that would have registered somehow Albanians in the kind of consciousness of Europeans. But yeah, other than that, I agree with you. And since the, the history isn't that well known here, could you say something on Albania's Cold War experience and, and particularly the split with first the Soviet Union and then later China and how the regime made sense of Albania's isolation to the Albanian population and how it sought to try to situate the country in, in the global system? Yeah, so I guess the first thing to say is that uh, the Albanian state was a state that was founded relatively recently. So it started as a sovereign, as an independent state in 1912. First, it was a sort of liberal, I guess, democracy. Well, we, we said in inverted commas, both liberal and both democracy. And then it, we had a self-proclaimed king and then the uh, King Zog, who then began to make commercial deals with Italy. And so there was this moving into the sphere of influence of Italians, Vittorio Emanuele, and then Mussolini, and then a kind of official occupation by the fascists and then the Nazis. So that was pre-communism. 
And in the 40s, there began to be a resistance movement, which was in part built with the help of the newly founded Albanian Communist Party in 1941, which then, when, when the war finished, and ended up being the victorious party in the first and only free elections in the post-war period. And uh, the interesting thing about that period is that the Albanian communists had fought against the fascists with Yugoslav communists. And so there had been a kind of joint resistance movement. And in fact, the Albanian Communist Party in its founding in sort of 1940 had been founded with the help of Yugoslav communists. And when they had fought in, after they finished fighting in Albania, they had then moved to Yugoslavia. In fact, for people who have read and, and like Eric Hobsbawm, he mentions Albania and Yugoslavia as the only countries in Europe where Nazism and fascism was fought and won without help from allies. I mean, there were some spies and so on from um, other countries, but basically the, the resistance movement was very much won from the ground, which obviously gave this party a lot of legitimacy or the, the legitimacy that it could find came from there, basically from this episode of, of resistance to, to fascism, which was also very important throughout the communist period in the historical consciousness of people that there had been this movement and there was this resistance. But then uh, Hoxha, who was the leader of the communist party, ended up having his quibbles and there was a power struggle within the Albanian communist party, which was then renamed Albanian Labour Party. And, uh, and ended up basically parting ways with Yugoslavia. And this also coincided with tensions between Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union, which was still then under Stalin. And so the Albanian communism, the kind of the legacy and the way it defined itself was as this more or less loyal to Stalin communist party and communist founded system and the beginnings, the first few years of communism in Albania were very much like Stalinism in the Soviet Union. So the same kind of purges and the same level of political repression and censorship and so on. Except that what happened was that when Stalin died and the Soviet Union went through a wave of de-Stalinization, the Albanian Communist Party parted ways with the Soviet Union. And part of the critique, some of it was obviously for internal reasons and some of them to do with the position of Yugoslavia and some of them to do with kind of new realignment with, with, between the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia. But uh, a lot of it also had to do with just the fact that they felt that the Soviets, with the Khrushchev and so on, were going soft and they were in some ways abandoning what they considered to be the kind of pure ideals of communism and um, this sort of strong Stalinist core. And so they split with the Soviet Union and progressively they began this um, alliance with China. And then again, when the Chinese decided to moderate, Albania split with the Chinese. And so that was the point in which in the late 70s, they had um, also broken with, uh, with the Chinese because of their move to uh, a more moderate form of communism, so opening up to market economy a little bit more and so on. And so when I was growing up in the 80s, we were effectively completely isolated. Um, there wasn't really any other country in the world that we were close allies with. And in fact, Albania had also left the um, Warsaw Pact in 1968 when the Soviet Union invaded Prague. And the discourse internally was this rhetoric of anti-imperialism, which took the form of both resisting what they called the Anglo-American imperialists on the one hand and the Soviet imperialists on the other hand, and the idea that uh, Albanian communism was um, in some ways, the, the, the expression, the slogan was the lighthouse of anti-imperialist struggles around the world. 
And the contacts were then with very isolated or small Marxist-Leninist groups who were fighting in, I don't know, Africa or Latin American countries. And those were the friends of Albania, in a way, outside Albania. And otherwise, internally, the discourse was very much of communism combined with heavy nationalism. And this is the form that I came to know the system when I was growing up, basically. And that discourse around Albania being, as you say, this sort of light unto the nations and, and the sort of keepers of the holy flame of, of, of Stalinism, so to speak, also informs the way in which the regime responded to the events of, of 1989. And you have this very interesting passage in the book where you point out the way in which the collapse of other Eastern Bloc regimes in 1989 was described by the regime and state media. And it, effectively, it seems to be the argument was that they were failing as a consequence of their own deviation from, from Stalinist orthodoxy, right? Yeah, exactly. And this is why they also felt that uh, they weren't really going to be touched by these events going on in Eastern Europe and Central Europe and uh, in former Yugoslavia and so on, because they felt that these countries in some ways were now suffering the consequences of their own mistakes, which had always been to kind of get into this more and more moderate direction and more and more revisionist and so yeah the the way in which for example you know the glasnost and the perestroika were conducted in the soviet union just didn't touch albania at all in that way it was a very different the idea was this was a very different context that the uh, the, the abandonment of stalinism was already been taking on for decades in the soviet union and this was a kind of natural result of abandoning that course and that albania would be spared everything that followed because it hadn't been part of those changes do you think then that the regime's elite, in fact, actually believe this? Because, as you say, Albania hadn't gone through that process of a sort of gradual reformist project. And so therefore, there didn't seem to be a precedent for, for a very rapid loss of control. Yeah, I think uh, it was. Um, so what happened was that, and, and this is often something that gets discussed in Albania, Enver Hoxha, who had been guiding the Communist Party um, in Albania for, for 40 years, was basically died in 1985. And the new secretary of the party who took over in 1985 was a loyalist. And so he was a close friend of Enver Hoxha that had been a purge in the party just before that, when the former prime minister had uh, committed suicide in sort of mysterious circumstances. And so that had been a purge in the early 80s. And the idea was that the new leadership, the one that took over the party in after the death of Hoxha, was very much con- going to continue on the same line. But then the leader turned out to be in in effect, a little bit more moderate in the sense that, you know, we didn't have the bloodshed that one would have expected if Hoxha had still been in charge, basically. And of course, the economic circumstances were very dire throughout the late, well, throughout the 80s and the late 80s, and uh, um, people were very, very poor. There were these really long queues, and some of these phenomena were already obviously seen and observed in other parts of Eastern Europe. But um, in Albania, you know, we had the same kind of issues, really. And uh, combined with this high degree of censorship and political imprisonment and um, execution of adversaries and so on. So it was, a, it was a strange thing because on the one hand, as I say, there had been this death of the kind of historic leader and the new re- the replacement, the new leadership was in discourse similar but in practice turned out to be not as harsh. And um, on the other hand, there was also the precedent of the... Um, so the only other, the only country in, in Central and Eastern Europe that was a model for Albania was Romania. And when Ceausescu was killed in the circumstances in which he was killed with his wife, that was really the point that in Albania began to resonate. And this idea that what was 
initially unthinkable, which was, you know, the killing of a leader and the um, the end of communism in a country that had been in people's imaginations a little bit like Albania, that really made made them understand that maybe something could happen here as well. So it was that much more than the Berlin Wall, for example, and much more than Gorbachev, and much more than the Soviet Union. In terms of what you were trying to, to, to do in writing the book, there's obviously a, a genre of, of, of literature written by people who've lived under repressive regimes. And, and sometimes those books, often for very good reason, are, are very straightforward repudiations of authoritarianism. But in your case, I mean, your book, while it certainly doesn't shy away from describing the intense repressiveness of the Albanian regime and the violence of the security forces, it doesn't seem to sit in that category. And, and the, the book is critical not only of the regime, but what came after and of liberalism at what looks like in retrospect to have been its hegemonic high point. Do you see the book as part of a broader literature? And, and, and could you talk a bit about how the book perhaps makes the point that the critiques that the Western media made of Albania and other communist states were in many respects true, but at the same time, there was also plenty of truth to the communist criticism of, of the West as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the way I think about the book is not so much as a book about you know my life and as a memoir, actually. I began to write the book as a book which was going to be a book about freedom, and I wanted to write on the idea of freedom in the kind of liberal and socialist traditions. But I was always very impatient with analysis of real liberalism and real socialism, which lost the nuances between the different countries and the different historical experiences and also the way in which there were conflicts also within the Eastern Bloc, for example, or within the socialist world, as there are in the liberal world between different countries and the different historical experiences give a different uh, shape to what people live on the ground. And so I wanted to write about this sort of general philosophical theme, which is the idea of freedom. And I wanted to try and explain what individual freedom and responsibility look like when you have these larger social constraints and when you have these structures of power that inhibit individual agency and to show how they inhibit individual agency differently in different political systems and, um, and, and in a way to try and kind of be critical of both so as to get to a real understanding of, you know, what should real freedom look like? What does a society that tries to realize freedom look like? And what can you learn also from these past experiences of, in both cases, in thinking about the future? And so the book is kind of set in Albania, but I don't think of it as an Albanian story in a way. And I don't, it's only after the book came out and people began to read it as an Albanian story and, and, and to read it as a memoir or a sort of autobiographical genre that they brought home to me the point that I had actually written about Albania. Because for me, what I wanted to write about was freedom and Albania was almost like a limit case where you could test a kind of particular component of a theory or a value in its extreme form. And in my case, in the case of Albania, it was extreme because it was extreme both in how socialism was understood and, and realized and how it affected people, but also how the transition happened and was managed and what it brought with it and what, you know, liberalism brought and how in some ways both of these systems had kind of betrayed the people that they were supposed to, to serve, which had often been presented as rivals to each other and which had often been presented as kind of having a different ethos that characterized each of them and a different set of values. So... I wanted it to be the sort of limit case from which you can observe, you know, it's a kind of like mathematicians or political scientists talk about this limit case is a case where you can test these components or a theory and or a value and, and, and in its extreme form and then see what gets what you take out of it. So 
yeah, that was the sort of the value of um, Albania. What's, what was really interesting afterwards when the book came out was actually how I thought I had been really critical of Albanian communism. And yet now, when I see the book being discussed in Albania, people often say that this was a, a, an attempt to, um, to, to, to present the, the communist regime in a, in a good light. Or um, So there's this sort of interesting way in which people from the inside look at what was going on compared to people from the outside. And in a way, that was also part of the story to see, to, to, to tell the story of how people on the ground think of themselves compared to how outsiders think of, think of them. And that uh, should inform the way in which countries like Albania are engaged with. In terms of the Western liberal perception of, of Albania, so there's a chapter in the book where you describe encountering tourists in the country as a, as a, as a young girl. And these were, of course, not the same tourists who, who at the time were, were going to the Costa del Sol or the Algarve, say, but these are rather wealthier tourists looking for adventure and a kind of boutique holiday experience. And you describe their attitudes towards Albania and, and to, towards socialism more generally. And you write that they had no political views but one. Socialism was contrary to human nature anywhere and in any form. And reading that, I was thinking about the way the communist world was and, and, and still is perceived and, and how as well as being described as repressive and unjust, there's also an almost deeper repugnance associated with the way those societies are seen as being grotesque and absurd and, and in some way contrary to a certain idea of, of human nature. And perhaps as a, as a kind of corollary of that, of that view, there's a sense that those regimes were always going to collapse. And that there was no other possible path for them but eventual disintegration or, or overthrow. I wonder if you could talk about that particular aspect of the of the Western view of Albania and the Eastern Bloc more generally and, and your perspective on it. Yeah, so this was the one kind of tourist that came to Albania that I, I encountered as a child. There was another kind of tourist, which was the other yes. extreme in a way, <laughs> that were these sects of Marxist-Leninists, especially from Scandinavia. And in fact, when I toured the, the Scandinavian countries to present the book, I always meet actually people who tell me that we, we used to be in those groups, these sort of Marxist-Leninist groups that believed that Soviet Union was traitors and more, too moderate and China was too moderate and Yugoslavia, not even mentioned, and that Albania was the only country that really held up. And so they were, they were the ones who really believed this kind of state propaganda. But the ones that I was... Uh, and, and so this was one extreme. And the other extreme was the groups that came and came to almost show that because communism in Albania took this kind of extreme form, you could really see how, how you know, it was going to end up in every other country. And I wanted to resist that in a way because I've always been suspicious of people who say to me, well, where has socialism really worked? Because you could apply that to any system of ideas that, you know, if you think about historical experiences and if you think about what the ideals promise, there is always a chance that what you actually, when you observe real institutions, those ideals fail, fail and fall very badly. And part of the reason, the second part of the book takes the form that it takes, and the, the, the reason there is this symmetry, actually, between the sort of socialist period and the capitalist period, is to say, look, there were promises on both sides, and these promises both failed. They failed in different ways, but in the end, there were lives ruined by both. It's not as though only one system was had to answer this question of how does this actually work, and has it uh, can it ever be realized? Because if you ask that question... And if you think about the promises of liberalism in the transition period afterwards, then you could play the same game. And so I was always very, very, um, yeah, I, I didn't like that question because I always felt, well, if you want to engage with 
ideas, you need to think about historical institutions and you need to think about historical experiences as learning processes that should inform your thinking about the future. But I don't think it's very productive to engage with these societies as exemplars of you know, either failure or success, because it's not true that in the West you have any particularly successful experience of liberal triumphalism. I mean, you know, even the countries that are often brought as examples of, well, this is where it's worked, are often mixed systems or systems with kind of institutions that are much more complicated than that. And so that was one uh, one source of uh, concern for me and one thing that I wanted to respond to. And the other thing that I wanted to respond to was that the dominant tendency in liberal societies and also I think by left people and well-meaning people is to often relate to the plight of countries or groups who don't share this kind of straightforward liberal trajectory by thinking of themselves as the moral saviors that are going to free these people and their countries from their backwardness and their plight, and whichever you, you think about it. And I wanted to talk about the ways the different ideas of freedom and the kind of multiplicity of ideas of freedom in a limit case like Albania and in a limit case like my family in Albania to highlight that there is always a kind of risk of paternalism in that way of engaging with these experiences that are outside the core of familiarity of liberal states, which I think ends up because of the position of ignorance from which it starts in assessing these societies and in assessing what they're capable of or whether they can succeed and fail, I think it ends up perpetuating oppression rather than actually helping them to free themselves. And so, so I wanted to bring Albania as an example and discuss both socialism and liberalism in Albania as a way of engaging with this way in which I thought Western countries, shaped by liberal values, engage with countries outside the core of liberal interests and the way in which, as I say, this kind of paternalism, which I think informs their way of responding whenever there is a conflict or a problem um, in the area. And so I wanted to to tell the story not just as a story of you know tragedy and oppression, but also as a story of ongoing search for freedom, both individual and collective, in these societies from within, so that when people engage with this context, they understand that, yes, there is severe censorship, and yes, there is severe oppression, but people are always asking themselves questions, and they're always finding ways of finding information, and they're always finding ways of trying to respond and to resist to the, to the societies that they, to, to the systems that they live under. And that sense of that liberal paternalism that you described, was that something you were, you were conscious of at the time in the early 90s? Um, I don't know that I was conscious of it as such, as in as the category of liberal paternalism, but there was a sense certainly of cynicism when people began to engage with foreigners who came to Albania with these models of development. So the narrative in the in the 90s was that, you know, communism had been defeated all over Europe and and, and elsewhere as well. And that now there was a sort of new liberal doctrine and there was no other alternative in terms of systems and how you think about societal models and that certain things had to be done to deliver freedom to the people, basically. And so this idea of the end of history, which is also in the title of the book, was very much basically, I think, shaped by this sense of liberal triumphalism with regard to how they engage with these societies. So what happened in the 90s is that you would then from within see how this happened on the ground. Basically, you'd have you know, armies of experts and people from the World Bank and the IMF and experts of transition, politicians who came to advise, international organizations, what was all went under the broad umbrella term of civil society, which all came with ideas of how they needed to help Albanians manage this transition. 
And although I don't think we framed it back then as paternalism or we were aware of the fact that this was paternalistic or that it came from a position of relative ignorance with regard to what had been actually going on in Albania, there was definitely a detachment in, in the way in which these recipes were received from the from these institutions, basically. And so people were like, oh, well, let's just do it because they ask us or because it's easy. It became a kind of box-ticking exercise. And I remember so when... I, I actually, I think I, I discussed this in the book. There was a, a, a moment where someone was in an office and had been told to do certain things from the World Bank, and he was saying, "Oh well, you know, we survived the Ottoman Empire, and we survived the fascists, and we survived communists, and now we will survive the World Bank." And so this was a sense in which there was a kind of very deep cynicism about what you were asked to do, which was marked by not a particularly high degree of confidence in the plausibility of the. Uh, advice that you were given or the things that you actually needed to do just the idea was that we have to do these things because we're asked to be doing them and because we've been isolated for so long and Albanians had been kind of dreaming of the west and so on now the west is here advising us so we better take the advice in a way which is very much also part of how people now see you know the european union or the united states of america or all these kind of western liberal powers it's very much a sense of cynicism detachment mixed with this historical legacy of having been completely isolated from these countries for half a century and now needing to catch up and so basically just doing the things that you're told to do not necessarily because you think it's what you need to do but just because it's what you need to do to get there as it were when it comes to the politics of free trade and open borders the camps are dug in producing a kaleidoscope of claims and counterclaims unlikely alliances and unexpected foes. But what exactly are we fighting about? And how might we approach these issues more productively? In six faces of globalisation, who wins, who loses, and why it matters, Anthea Roberts and Nicholas Lamp cut through the confusion with an indispensable survey of the interests, logics, and ideologies driving these debates. The authors expertly guide us through six competing narratives about the virtues and vices of globalisation to reveal fault lines that divide us and points of agreement that might bring us together. Six Faces of Globalization, Who Wins, Who Loses and Why It Matters by Anthea Roberts and Nicholas Lamp is out now from Harvard University Press. You have this great paragraph in the book where you write that when freedom finally arrived, it was like a dish served frozen. We chewed little, swallowed fast and had remained hungry. Some wondered if we had been given leftovers. Others noted that they were simply cold starters. Could you talk a little more about what you were getting at there and, and particularly this notion of swallowing freedom fast? Well, I think in part it was a reflection on the way in which all these reforms happened in the early 90s, which were opening up the country to market economies and to uh, you know political pluralism, and the, the two were always combined. So one thing that I felt, and one of the things that I really wanted to, to write about and think about in, with, with the book, was this idea that when the um, Cold War finished, parts of the dissident movements in, across Eastern Europe had been a kind of yearning for democracy. And one of the diagnoses of what went wrong with socialism, I think was rightly, that what went wrong was that basically there was censorship and there was political oppression and there wasn't enough democracy. And so what countries really needed was democracy. And of course there were economic issues as well, but I think it was a combination of economic system run in a certain way combined with this very stale political system, which then led to the explosion and the kind of complete collapse of, of everything in the 90s. 
And so I feel like when people then interpreted these movements in, in the 90s and afterwards, sort of in the mid-90s and 2000s and so on, the fact that they were dissident movements who were democratizing movements, but not necessarily free market movements, was often missed. And they were the two things were always clustered together. It felt as though what people wanted was both democracy and market uh, liberal capitalist freedom, basically. And to me, these two things weren't necessarily there in the first place. I mean, there was obviously a kind of longing for Western goods and there was a sense in which, you know, consumption was missing or sort of opening up to market uh, consumption was missing in these countries. And so there was a sense in which people idealized the practices, the economic practices of the West and so on. But it wasn't clear to me that anyone had really signed up for or really asked for this full neoliberal markets, basically, and 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 this way of conducting reforms of, for example, closing down state enterprises and privatizing them and sacking people and so on, all the way in which the transition was managed through this, what was called at the time, shock therapy, the idea that you need to do this very quick, very rapid interventions in the economic system to try and open it up as soon as possible, to open up to trade and so on. And then eventually this belief that the market would absorb the costs and that there would be costs, but eventually everything would kind of be uh, would come together in in the right way and so when i was writing those sentences about freedom what was on my mind was the fact that there wasn't really time for a reflection on how you could actually do these things that you know you might be able to preserve something like i don't know socialist market economy and then open up uh, the political system or democratize the political system and then have a society that is both free but also more equal than the ones that we ended up with and that there were margins or there were experiences that we weren't thinking about and there were ways of discussing what democracy required which really hadn't been part of the conversation at all and so the idea was that we were having we were basically given this idea of what freedom requires in order to be delivered to this collective and that freedom requires both market freedom of this economic sort of neoliberal capitalist kind and political freedom of sort of party party system and opening up and so on and the two things just came in one package without anyone really having a chance to interrogate whether that was the right solution or whether things could have been done differently or you know what how you could remedy and so this was the idea that it was it was like a dish served frozen in the sense that this wasn't it wasn't authentic it wasn't you hadn't cooked it you weren't really autonomous you hadn't really had time to reflect on all of these things it was just something that was tried out something else somewhere else and that people gave to you and you had no choice but to absorb those models in a way turning to the to the more sort of personal side of the book so during your, your childhood, right up to the end of the regime in, in 1990, your parents led you to believe that they were true believers and, and, and hid from you the, uh, their own views and, and the dissident history of their, of their own families. What was your response when your parents told you the truth about their actual view of the regime? Because it seems from the book that you weren't able to uh, sort of straightforwardly accept that they'd been deceiving you in order to protect you and, and also that you, you also didn't simply uh, adopt their, their own perspectives. Yeah, well, it was very hard. And, and the thing that I was writing about was this kind of confusion of how and when this was all happening. Because the book is written from the point of view of this you know, young girl who is making the transition from childhood to adolescence which is a transition that comes with doubts and with, you know, concerns about your family and existential dilemmas anyway, and in all cases. But what stands out in this case is that 
the personal cognitive and sort of emotional evolution coincides with this revolution in the country from one political system to the other. And so that's why it's the book is a kind of coming of age story, both for the individual, but also from the country. And it's a kind of traumatic coming of age story because uh, in the personal case, you learn these ideas of freedom and personal responsibility from the social environment. But in this case, the different sites of influence, on the one hand, the family, and on the other hand, the state through the education system are in contrast with each other. And so what happened was I grew up in this dissident family without knowing it. And I was therefore both subjected to this kind of formative influence of the state on the one hand through the school system, which was not being challenged by my family. But then on the other hand, in the family, there were other things going on, the sorts of double speak and, you know, code language and so on. So there were the, the, the confusion of the discovery came basically from this not knowing which, you know, which of these sources of authority in a way to trust and how to, which I eventually accommodated very quickly to because I, I trusted my parents and I knew they loved me and so I understood and then, you know, the more details were revealed about my family, the less I doubted what they had told me. But at the point in which it happened, I remember, for example, that when I was told that my grandfather was a political prisoner for 15 years, it was just very hard for me to understand why anyone would go to political prison because I wasn't familiar with the concept. I mean, Albania was full of political prisons, but I wasn't familiar because they weren't discussed. They weren't, you didn't hear about them in school. And, uh, you, you know, people in my family wouldn't talk about them openly as prisons or as political prisons. And so I've never known that, that my grandfather was a political prisoner. And I also had found it very hard to adjust to this idea of a political prison, because to me, prison was a place where you only go if you're stealing stuff or you're committing murder or if you're killing someone. So the crime of conscience was just not something that you could understand as an 11 year old, basically. So I was, uh, it was very confusing at the time. And yeah, I, I'd say it was a sort of big question mark around my identity and the fact that I had grown up convinced that I was a good pioneer in a good country and then I discovered that I would actually never be a communist because I would never be accepted in the party because of the family background and um, and all of that was really hard to understand if you don't live through well my parents were insisting that I would eventually discover all of them with maturity but I never reached maturity so I would never know what actually would have happened to me and I think that's one of these big sort of identity questions that you carry with you for your whole life. Of, you know, what would I have been if things had not changed in Albania in 1990? And what, I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's pure conjecture, but what's your suspicion of, of what your future might have been like, at least in terms of how you, you might have related to the social system and the, and the government? Yeah, I think I'm convinced that if I had been just five years or six years older at the time in which all of this happened, I would probably not be on the left at all. And that my experience when I hear from people who are, you know, just generations just slightly above mine, they are so hostile to anything that is socialism or to any ideas. The idea for them that there could be a socialist theory of freedom is like anathema. They would just not accept it. And I think because they had grown up and eventually discovered this very place in this very rigid social system, which I think I would have eventually also discovered, but I, it's just that I didn't discover it. And therefore, I was more open in some ways to explore alternatives and to explore different ideas and to also assess what was going on in the 90s without this longing for freedom, which the generation above mine had had. And 
because, you know, I was a child, I didn't have thoughts about politics or the ones that I had about politics came from the school system. And so they were thoughts about the injustice of other places as opposed to Albania. And my parents weren't telling me that, you know, what they felt and what they thought about how things were in Albania. So I never really become critical or became critical of the Albanian system as a child, which meant that afterwards I never really equated socialism or the ideas of socialism or the idea of socialist freedom just with the Albanian experience for me it was a much more open category and you know there was the Soviet Union there was Yugoslavia there were all these other socialist states there was social democracy in Scandinavia and so there were different ways in which socialist ideas had featured in different institutions and what you had to be and think about was just a critical way of engaging with them and combining them seeing the sort of failures on both sides but I think if I had actually, you know, been just a little bit older and had really experienced this idea that you wouldn't be able to be in the party even if you wanted to, if you came from a certain family, then I think I would have been much more hostile and, and resistant and, and probably I would have been much more convinced of the truth of the other side in a way than I ended up ever being. Both of your parents were, uh, of course, critical of the, the regime. And, and as we've discussed, you discovered that around 1990. But their criticism took quite different forms. So in, in some respects, it seems that your your mother seemed to repudiate the regime in a much more kind of wholehearted fashion, whereas your father was more leftist in his outlook and was sympathetic to a social democracy, but also to leftist militant groups operating abroad. And, and you describe in particular his fascination with the Italian Red Brigades, whose activities he was covertly following by listening to Italian radio. Could you explain their, their differing perspectives on, on the regime? Yeah, so for me, in the book, they were, you know, they are treated as exemplars of different ideas of freedom, really. So my mother had what one might call this classical liberal idea of negative freedom, which is, you know, you're free if nobody stops you from doing things like traveling or dressing in a certain way or saying certain things in public. And basically, this animates all her struggles in the book. And that's why she also comes from this property-owning bourgeois family. And her whole concern is with getting what you're entitled to and what you worked hard for and making sure that the state doesn't interfere when you're trying to, you know, get to, in a way, enjoy the products of your labor or the products of the labor of your ancestors who worked so hard so that they could transfer things to you in the right way. And for her, the injustice of socialism was basically striking from all these different fronts. It was about political censorship. It was about not being able to enjoy the wealth that her um, grandfather and her family had kind of put together and the fact that they were basically dispossessed and so on. And with my father and my father's side of the family, it was a very different, very different idea of freedom. So my dad had a much more, I guess, social idea of freedom, what people call, the philosophers call positive freedom, which is the kind of freedom too. It's not enough to be stopped from doing certain things. You are only free if you also have opportunities available to realize yourself. And his dilemmas about freedom become actually really relevant in the second part of the book, which is about liberalism. And when the fortunes of the family are turned, they go from being victims of socialism to being on the side of the victors, in a way, under liberalism. And he's personally rewarded for, uh, you know, by becoming a CEO who has to fire workers for the sake of structural reforms imposed with the approval and with the advice of the World Bank and the IMF and so on. And this is 
deeply disturbing for him because that's not his idea of freedom. So his idea of freedom is that everyone should have the opportunity to enjoy themselves and to have a life to make a living. And so when he becomes someone who is responsible for firing people, he found this really hard because that's not what he thought a just system should do. And he struggled a lot more with this than you know other people who felt that it was all about personal responsibility. And if you fall out of the market structure, then that's just your problem. Nobody has a duty to rescue you. So basically, and his uh, and his politics was very strange always because, as I say, he had this fascination with his militant groups in the West. Not because I mean they were he was a very peaceful man. He didn't have any you know he didn't um, have any longing or any desire for revolutionary violence. It wasn't anything like that. So I was really puzzled when I discovered late in my teens that I was called that he always called me Brigatista and who actually the Red Brigades really were. And and because you know knowing him, it was very weird. But actually, I think what fascinated him was this sort of early period of these revolutionary movements where there was this idea of the kind of romantic revolutionary who is acting by himself and, you know, doesn't have really a structure or a big movement behind him, but just does the kind of heroic gesture, even sacrificing his life. And I remember one of his favorite characters was uh, Gian Giacomo Feltrinelli, who used to, who was this kind of Italian revolutionary, the founder of the, or came from this famous publishing house in, in Italy, the Feltrinelli family, and who eventually, you know, didn't recognize himself, didn't identify either with the wealth of his family or with the state in which he lived, and he was kind of rejecting everything. And my dad, I think, identified with these groups not so much because he necessarily, uh, would not, not at all because he identified with the goals or anything like that, but I think he just had this idea of the kind of romantic revolutionary and in fact, I discovered that my dad always said great things about leftist revolutionaries. And I discovered the ones that he always said great things about were always dead one way or another. You know, they'd been killed or they died in kind of circumstances and so on. So the people that he romanticized were always people who had failed, but failed somehow by making these revolutionary gestures and by showing their own personal heroism. And I feel it's because he felt trapped in this society where he had this social inclinations and he had this kind of leftist instincts but then he came from a family where none of this really belongs and that his position in society was assigned by the family background and so he then had this kind of weird way of I guess finding his way around politics and, and um, both domestic politics and, and global politics which ended up being very disturbing in the 90s as I say because of the position that he was occupying. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.